2: Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFY.
0: Hi, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And in our continuing miniseries with Samantha... Hi! Hello, Samantha. Thanks for joining us once again. All um, day, every day. <laughs> We're uh, going to be talking about the fallout of trauma because this whole series is examining all kinds of aspects of trauma, um, of sexual assault, and the cost of it. And after this traumatic event happens, you the survivor has to pick up the pieces because it does cost survivors, not only in terms of mental, physical, and emotional health, but, like, financially, too. Um, And it in ways that you might not expect, like, think about the cost of therapy, of medication, lost hours or jobs uh, due to anxiety, panic attacks, PTSD, um, and then, yeah, rape kits, court trials. It is like a bomb has gone off in your life, and the shrapnel is tearing into your heart and soul and body and relationships.
1: Right. I mean, essentially, if you look at it simply, it's a loss of self, almost like a mourning period. Yeah. I mean, it could be c- compared to that life. Like, you have lost your sense of safety, and you have lost a sense of hope Yeah. Um, that you should have been—that should have been part of your human rights. Yeah. Yeah, and I think—I
0: um, know I've said it uh, before, and I totally stole this from Harry Potter, but it's true— um, I feel when I remember these times in my life, I feel like I'm remembering a younger sister who died. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that was from the Seventh Harry Potter book, but I feel like it's very fitting. It is. It's,
1: you become a whole new person, so your sense of innocence has been lost, and that is a death in your life. Yeah, and you do grieve it. So trigger warnings before
0: we get into it. Sexual assault, um, suicidal ideation, self-harming behaviors, eating disorders, abuse. I have just spent... A couple hours um, reading about uh, the responsible reporting on these kinds of things and um, how uh, contagious hearing about this can be if it is a triggering factor for you. Right. So please, please, please think about yourself and your mental health before listening. Right. Yes. Um, So, all right, let's talk about some of the aftermath of trauma. the the bad coping mechanisms that survivors might employ to deal. Um, And one of the number one things is substance abuse, alcohol and drug abuse. Right. According to some studies, people who have experienced sexual assault are 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol and 26 more times more likely to abuse drugs. Mm. And that's to self-medicate, to forget, to cope, or a manifestation of self-destructive behavior. I've mentioned in past episodes that for, like, the past two years, I have been what I call destructive Annie. Right. Very much not taking care of myself. Uh, but one interesting thing about these numbers is it's from a study from 1992. And more recent studies with more nuanced definitions found that alcohol abuse is three times more likely than drug abuse. And it's really fascinating because the difference in numbers had to do with that whole real rape thing that right. we've talked about. So... When you define it in that narrow way, it created a much smaller pool that were—that pool was more likely to abuse drugs. So always
1: read the study specifications. Yeah, and of course, you're getting new more correctly or at least more diverse numbers of people to do these studies with. And of course, we're also changing and defining who is relevant and who isn't.
0: Yes, yes. A lot of studies look at increased risk of sexual assault actually happening— due to alcohol and drug abuse. But what we're talking about here is the increase of alcohol and drug abuse after a sexual assault. However, the two are hard to separate, and there's a lot of overlap, particularly between people who were already habitual users prior to their assault. Which
1: is often what's used against them. Like, they have a history of something, so they no longer attribute that as part of the reason after the fact.
0: Right. Um, What is that called? Alcohol-assisted rape? Right. Yeah. Uh, It's hard to separate a lot of these things out.
1: Which, honestly, if you look back, I bet we can look into uh, more studies about the people who are already abusing alcohol, having a new sexual assault. It's actually a perception of possibly further previous abuse that has happened that's not acknowledged.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, while your body may freeze, your emotions don't. And survivors need an outlet. And I can yeah, totally include myself in here. Alcohol and drug abuse is a way to kind of mute uh, emotions or sometimes force them out. Some survivors use it as an attempt to reassert control and regulate the emotions. If you feel a negative emotion coming on, you attempt to treat it with drugs or alcohol and get that disassociative state. And I think even people who aren't survivors can relate to that, or at least have seen it in TV. Like, it's almost kind of a joke. Like, you're sad and lonely. Right.
1: I mean, if you even look at the um, uptick of opiates
0: Mm -hmm. and the reason
1: that's happening, it's not necessarily all of them are trauma victims necessarily, but maybe unhappy teenagers who have overdosed. And you look at the needs and the cost of what can make them feel better, quote-unquote. And for me, a lot of my... uh, population that I work with in the the world of social work mm-hmm. they would rather have something that they can control yeah. rather than something that is safely prescribed right and that's also one of the big like oh my goodness coping mechanisms that's not being regulated
0: yeah and i, I think a thread in all the stuff that we're talking about one of the most important things is that feeling of control cuz it's been taken from you exactly so you're you're trying to cope and feel in control again possibly in these very uh, unhealthy ways. Right. One study found that 79% of sexual assault survivors get drunk for the first time after the assault, and 89% try cocaine for the first time.
1: That is really specific.
0: I know. Kind of surprising to me personally, but I guess if you consider, unfortunately, how young usually the first sexual assault happens, um, I guess it fits into that. Mm -hmm. And I have definitely started self-medicating more mostly with alcohol since Donald Trump got elected, self-destructive Annie, that's when she was born. Um, All my trauma bubbled up to the surface. Um, It kind of shocked me because I thought I had it kind of in control. (laughs) But then this happened, and, um, yeah, it just, I lost control. But I was trying to convince myself that I had it. Um, And alcohol is so much easier then getting treatment or getting medication. It's an easy way to yeah self-medicate to try to head off these negative emotions. Some survivors use drugs or alcohol as a way to become more sexual or to be able to have sex, like if they're so right. tense.
1: These are, I mean, this is not uncommon for any person in general because You don't want to admit there's something wrong. Right. And drinking is a social thing. So therefore, why not? This is acceptable. This is legal, Mm -hmm. essentially. And so therefore, this is a much better way of trying to forget and or liquid courage, as they would call it, as you're talking about with trying to become sexual and hoping to continue as if life is normal. Right. And that's something that um, a couple of
0: listeners wrote in about because we recently did an episode on consent and you cannot consent. If you are drunk and a lot of listeners wrote in and we like, well, but, but what about this? And I, it is, it's just difficult to navigate. So the fact that people are purposefully drinking right. in order to have sex is something that we should
1: take a note red, of. Well, that's a red flag. Yeah. Like if you only can have sex right. when your uh, inhibitions are down. Right there's some kind of issue, problematic moments that is going to block your ability to have an intimate relationship. Right, exactly.
0: Another piece of fallout is risky sexual behavior. Sexual violence has been linked to high-risk sexual behavior like unprotected sex, increased risk of sexually transmitted infections. I think I've already said I went the total opposite way or am it, asexual, jury still out. Um, but in either case, that is something else that people who experience sexual assault often do, that, that they avoid sexual contact altogether. I always think of Rita from Dexter. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that.
1: Yes, I did, actually.
0: Yeah, which it worked out for him because he didn't want to have sex. Right. And she had been in this abusive relationship, and she didn't want to have sex. Right. But then she got past it, and, you know. And all of those things.
1: Well, actually, yeah. and we can also... In that spectrum of risky sexual behavior, we can correlate this with prostitution and domestic minor trafficking and in human trafficking. Um, according to one study, 70% of the prostituted victims attribute to being sexually abused as children, influencing their reason that they became prostitutes or started prostituting. And with that, um, 91% of those prostitutes never disclosed their sexual abuse. And then, on top of that, it shows that at least seventy to ninety percent of exploited children have been sexually abused, which is kind of one of the reasons that we talk about early sexualization as problematic yeah. um, because this is how they are conditioned
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, to become more sexual and or be uh, open to being sexually abused without realizing it is as a abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that we' talk about, obviously, if you look back and, and many of the kids who run away from home and then end up in this lifestyle or even um, women in general, this is a monetary gain. And this is what they learned their value is
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because that's what they were taught. Yeah, yeah. In 2017, the
0: Swedish media professionals and the Swedish Court of Appeals, has um, they have started talking about sex as self-injury or S-A-S-I, particularly among adolescents, survivors of assault or both. The definition from the Children's Welfare of Sweden is when a person has a pattern of seeking sexual situations involving mental or physical harm to themselves. The behavior causes significant distress or impairment in school, work, or other important areas. Or in the words of Stockholm Tejor... Quote, to have repetitive and recurrent intense feelings such as shame, guilt, anxiety, disgust and self-hatred that are confirmed and or temporarily alleviated by repetitive and recurrent exposure to sexual and physical abuse, humiliation and violation. This as well as alcoholism or drug abuse is categorized as indirect self-harming behavior, but it does have a pretty direct link to other self-harming behaviors which we will get into after a quick break for
1: a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes. And right now, that
0: is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced.
1: This year
0: is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, so let's start with self-harm, which is frequently cutting but sometimes burning skin with, like, cigarettes. um, This is another way of coping, bad coping, a survivor might turn to. And, again, this is, it relates back to control. It's about feeling in control. It's a behavior that is meant to self-injure
1: but not kill. Yeah, I don't know if I actually told you this, but one of my ways of coping when I get really stressed and anxious is actually scratching my head until I bleed Mm -hmm. and or actually um, holding my fists in order using my nails to cut into myself, right. which is oftentimes I don't even realize I'm doing it mm-hmm. until after the fact. But that is a form of uh, self-harming as well. So it's important
0: because to make that distinction between meaning to self-injure and not meaning to kill, because a lot of folks who display self-harming behavior uh, do not display suicidal behavior. Um, But people who do display self-harming behavior are more likely to contemplate suicide. Some people actually use self-harm as a way to release but not act on suicidal urges. Um, Again, this form of self-medication, just like alcohol or drugs. The, The pain becomes too much and you need a release or a distraction. The reason cited for most of this behavior is overwhelming negative emotions or stress. Some statistics show that 67% of people who self-harm feel no pain when they do self-harm. And people who have experienced some form of abuse are at a much higher risk of developing self-harming behavior.
1: And just like I said, I don't even notice half the time. Mm Is after the fact that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. Yeah. And it is. It's kind of one of those things that it's just an automatic reaction Mm -hmm. to stress. Because that's what I've learned as I'm not going to be volatile and loud and, you know, throw a fit. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna internalize and breathe, but in my subconscious, it's I'm losing myself. So what do I do to find myself again?
0: Right. And on top of the the control aspect, a lot of these things that we're talking about are addictive in nature. Mm-hmm. And self-harming that release that comes with it is also addictive. One in every one hundred people is thought to engage in self-harming behavior. Statistics show that teenagers, specifically female teenagers, are the most likely to self-harm, and I I did throughout um, high school and college. Estimates show that somewhere between 67 and 85% of people who self-harm are women. Whether this is because women are more likely to experience abuse or are taught to turn these negative emotions inward or both, experts aren't sure. 15% of rape victims have visible scars from self-harming, and it probably is more... There's a really incorrect narrative that I I believe has been addressed on this show. I know we did a video about it, um, that this is something teenage girls do for attention. But numerous studies have turned that narrative on its head.
1: Which is, I'm really glad it has, because it is a constant thing where everything is said as attention. A girl is being slutty. She's trying to seek attention. Right. A girl is being, right, uh, dramatic. Yes. Self-harming is
0: frequently compared to or described as an addiction or an irresistible urge, which is kind of what you were describing.
1: Right. And these different self-harming and eating disorders oftentimes have, as you already said, a control factor, having control on self, specifically part of one's life when everything feels uncertain or being taken out of your hands. But, you know, as stated above, it is also an uncontrollable urge and addiction has just been recently added to the DSM-5 in its own diagnosis and no longer is a symptom of another diagnosis, which is non-suicidal self-injury. That's
0: how it's titled. Another thing we need to talk about is eating disorders. Multiple studies have shown a link between abuse and eating disorders. One found 50% of people suffering from bulimia and anorexia had a history of sexual abuse compared to 28% of the participants that did not suffer from those two eating disorders. Important to note the distinction between correlation and causality. But worth mentioning, it can be used similarly to these other bad coping mechanisms we've been talking about. Again, a form of control, something that numbs you, disassociates you. I read an article that described an eating disorder as the person assuming the role of both the victim and the abuser. And I know that I developed my first eating disorder in middle school, like, directly related to my abuse. Um, I definitely used it as a way to feel in control, to feel numb. Also, I was, like, so anxious and full of hatred for my own body, which I blamed uh, for the whole situation, um, that food had no taste. I was nauseated all the time. And there's, there's, like, an element of cleansing involved as well. Right. Right. And then I've, I've called it before on this show, but exercising has become what I call my coping mechanism gone wrong, and actually through the therapy um, that Samantha and I have been doing, <laughs> my therapist said that it is another form of self-harm right. that I am engaging in.
1: I mean, originally you hear that as a positive, like I exercise so yeah. I can uh, release my stress. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely true that you are weighing down your body when you do too much.
0: Right. And if it's like painful and you still right. engage in it. Right. And this brings us to suicide, <laughs> um, which again, we're going to have resources at the end very careful when we discuss this. Um, It is a complex public health issue. 90% of suicides involve mental health and or substance abuse. So no one event is the cause. It's amalgamation of things. Yeah, but please, 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 please. Restating the trigger warning. Um, There are things, there are people, there are programs that are out there. To help you
1: right and and just to reiterate we're talking about this as statistics we're talking about this because it needs to be noted for those who don't understand what trauma is and for those who are suffering and or contemplating these ideas we want you to know that there are others who feel this way mm-hmm. and who can and have gotten out of it and myself yes. and I know Annie you've talked about it we are two of those people yes
2: um,
0: absolutely From the CDC, quote, suicide is the third leading cause of death among 15 to 24-year-olds, that's 20% of deaths, and the second leading cause of death among 25 to 35-year-olds, compared to the 10th leading cause overall. It's the second leading cause of death of American college students. Up to 15 of 1,000 females studied reported saying they made suicidal attempts after suffering from some sort of sexual harassment. 33% of women who are raped consider suicide and 13% attempted. And studies are ongoing into the statistics around the LGBTQI community and on male survivors. Survivors whose sexual assault took place 16 or younger are three to four times more likely to take their own lives. Overall, survivors are 10 times more likely to kill themselves.
1: And I know we just, I just recently talked about the case with a high school teacher Mm -hmm. in which this youth um, ended up taking her own life mm-hmm. um, and there are so many things obviously that was taken advantage of of this young lady yeah. and we need to talk about the fact that when we talk about grooming a lot of time predators can note the weak oddly enough
0: mm-hmm. um, and there's also youth in um, vulnerable identity groups including LGBTQI Um, worse with family rejection, Native American youth, Latina adolescent girls, foster care youth and alumni, homeless youth. And social media can really exacerbate this. Um, A quote I read from an article, it can really seem like the whole world knows. And that's to do with a lot of the revenge, um, revenge porn, as it's called. Right. Right. Um, Which
2: many
1: states have actually recognized this as a crime. Yeah. Which is Finally, I mean, I will say one of the things about um, laws and uh, regulations, they are having a hard time keeping up Mm -hmm. with social media and Internet and all of that because they are exceedingly faster than being able to pass a law or a bill. Yeah. Um, It is unfortunate that people are the worst. (laughs) <laughs> that
0: is unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. <laughs> we wouldn't be having this series at all if right. people would just be better. Right. Um, so for myself, um, I did try to kill myself when I was 15, and someone found me, and if they hadn't, I don't think I would be here. It was a combination of all of this fallout, um, ongoing, building up. I took the steps to get help. I told people. I have the numbers saved to in my phone, the hotline, so that... I'm ever feeling this way, I have a group of people I can reach out to you, and they know what to do because we've discussed it. So, yes, there is hope. Recovery is totally possible. It is always ongoing, but there are
1: resources out there for you. Right, and I think, um, as you and I have talked previously before, and as I mentioned above before, rather, that we, we have gone through these, and we have gone through some of the worst of it, mm-hmm. um, but also some of the like more supportive of it as well. Mm-hmm. and I think what it, what we need to talk about more is the fact that there is help yes. after the fact. There is survival mm-hmm. after the fact. Um, I know, like you were talking about, you were 14, I was 12, mm-hmm. and I got help from my friends, mm-hmm. not so much from my family, and that oftentimes happened because I will say I was in a very religious family, mm-hmm. and the idea was Jesus will save you. Mm-hmm. But, if you want to go down the religious faith route, it's also they've also provided help right. in this day and age. And it could be as easy as you have a friend or it can be as hard as you have to do therapy mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so another part of this fallout that we should talk about is um, setting examples for the younger people in our lives and normalizing. and. One of the most disturbing things about my own experience in hindsight is how I reacted to being date-raped in my freshman year of college. I wanted to do it was, but I had this overall sense that, oh, this happens. I rolled the dice and lost. It's a risk. I accepted it by going to a party and drinking. It's just something that happens, unfortunately, and I had drawn the short straw.
1: Right, and that's that's why we talk about the fact that many people have reached out to the show about am I, have I been raped mm-hmm. because they, they're in such self-hate Mm. that it's easier to blame yourself than to acknowledge something happened. And then when you actually look back on, oh, this is not my fault, it becomes a whole new world. But because we are so inundated by culture and quote-unquote patriarchy, Mm -hmm. that we had somehow done something Mm -hmm. to lead to this moment. Instead of acknowledging, oh, you as the partner who or the predator or the um the person who came after me you should take responsibility why am i taking it on to myself mm-hmm.
0: another cost is survivors guilt and wondering about other people that might have been hurt because of your silence and again People who come forward often experience that as well.
1: Victims often talk about how if they had come forward, they may have prevented later crimes, taking on the responsibility of the perpetrator. And I think we see that with some of the latest cases where everybody's accusing them of, why are you coming out now? Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. it's just essentially it's, I'm trying to protect the people. Right. And I think... I even had a certain case that happened in my small hope town, and I got someone. Someone reached out to me. I think I talked about this previously, and was like, "Hey, this dude is continuing, and we want to try to stop him." And I'm like, "Oh gosh, I have this responsibility." Mm-hmm. But as the legal legal part of portion of what I know, I'm like, "But I'm going to harm your case, right?" And I feel so guilty still mm-hmm. because I want to protect the women and children, but I don't know. The responsibility is, how do I do this without harming your case? Right. And honestly, owing, owning their own survival by paying back to society, that's kind of one of my driven reasons to be a social worker. And I've been one for years and years and years and years. It's because I feel like I have been given a moment of being able to say I'm okay. Yeah. And, and even though I feel damaged at times, mm-hmm. I'm still better than most. And I feel guilty when I can't give back and or I can't advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And if I fail, and I'm going to tell you in the world of social work, I feel like I failed more than I've helped. And I I, I know, I know the whole bit, but in my own personal life, it's kind of like, yeah, what have I done? Have mm-hmm. I really helped or am I just putting a small band-aid on a gashing wound? Right. Another piece of the fallout
0: here is loss of personal relationships, loss of trust, feeling dirty, or that you did something wrong. Thirty-eight um, percent of survivors experience problems at school or work following sexual trauma, and thirty-seven report experience problems with friends or family.
1: And I think we need to um, talk about the fact that about the whole feeling dirty, mm-hmm. um, because I think we all know what that experience feels like. It ruins sexual experiences sometimes for some. Um, And it it ruins intimacy in general, whether it's just a relationship. And for me, um, this is, as you were talking about therapy, one of the things that I have talked about with my therapist, with our therapist rather, Yeah. she's amazing, Mm -hmm. Um, is that the mere fact that I I can't last long in a relationship because to me it's all use them and leave them Mm -hmm. and or you're going to leave anyway. Um, And that's absolutely the feeling of I'm not worth it. I'm worth this value and yeah. that value is sexually and then you move on. Right. So I know, like, even though I am all about, you know, having your own experience, being um, strong in your own voice for sexuality, whatever, it's also part of that is I don't trust that it can be loving.
3: hmm You know? Yeah. And I
1: think that's what, like, I feel dirty at times. People feel dirty at times. There's moments that you can't associate outside of, that moment, mm-hmm. and whether you're going to be triggered at any moment for some awful reason, right? You know, and I think we also have to talk about the fact that this oftentimes affects relationships, whether it's your husband, your you know, or your partner, any of those reasons. That there is a moment of how does the partner react? Yeah, and what is he supposed to do, or what is she supposed to do? Mm-hmm.
0: So. We do have a little bit more in this episode, but first we have one more quick break forward from our sponsor.
2: This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halo. Arches and Halos Professional
0: Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you.
4: Gotta tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number 2 plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated, with over 100 million downloads, Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free. Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So to conclude this episode, um, when I think about why I didn't publicly come forward and, and like Until recently, not even with people that have known me forever, um, because I didn't think I I was worth it um, or that it was worth it. I didn't think I'd be believed. I didn't want to stress anyone out. (laughs) I wanted people to be happy and pretend that it never happened. And the thought of voicing that shame and disgust that I felt and giving it a name was terrifying. And in a weird way, it didn't even occur to me to do that. I was afraid of judgment, some sort of retaliation, and it it cost me to not come forward. All of these bad coping things, um, eating disorders, lack of sleep, suicidal ideation, constant guilt, wondering if other people suffered because of my silence. I, I did lose relationships going back to running. I wrecked my knees. Uh, I, I fought really hard, and I was determined to be happy. And it's so strange to say this, but some good did come out of it. Um, it's a very uneasy thing for me to admit, because it's this horrendous event, um, all these events that should never have happened. But I was able to take some of it and turn it into writing, into art, into things that helped me sort through what I was feeling, things that made me feel empowered. And I found my support group. And it's through all of this and working on this show and through meeting people like you, Samantha, Uh that I have been able to start to be more open about my experience. Um, There was a time where I could not even voice any of this. Uh, I would dissolve into a mess of tears and even screaming sometimes. And it's just taken a lot of time and having supportive people in my life um, that I've been able to take this step.
1: Right. Um, and I'm glad I could be a support for you. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm thinking, like, have I pushed you so too far sometimes? <laughs> and I think it, it is a part of the culture that silence is better than speaking. And I think this whole idea of we all suffer through things, just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to be out the door because we need to understand what we're going through or what we have gone through or the things that trigger us affect our daily life, Yes, um, affect our relationships, affect our own self-esteem. And yeah. I think for me, I mean, going through all of this, I've, I've tried to use my experiences as a motivation to do better, to be better, to care more, to... Uh, the detriment of myself, of me having anxiety attacks, suicidal ideation, not taking care of myself because I would rather focus on others Mm -hmm. than my own problems. And you and I talked about the fact that we um, are doing therapy again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of forgot because I was like, oh yeah, Andy's not going to take therapy. Andy's going to do therapy. She's going to be great. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) I have to talk about my issues too. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to let go of it somewhat without actually uh, going through it and going through the pains of growing from it or coping with it mm-hmm. and I think that's a lot of people um, who also want to deny because it was so long ago yeah you know mm-hmm. and you're like I should be over this by now but right. that's not true that's not a true statement at all yeah. you don't have to mm-hmm. you can work through it now and you should yeah and that's one of the reasons we
0: include the self-care things at the end, because we just want to be like
1: honest right, about
0: right. what we're doing and the difficulty of this. Um, so some resources. We talked about a lot of a lot of stuff in this one. So there's the national sexual assault hotline, and that's one 800 656 4673 For substance abuse, sexual abuse survivors are more likely to relapse after attending programs like rehab or getting sober or some other way. And this is not to discourage anyone, just an acknowledgement that going to rehab without treating the trauma is like treating a symptom, uh, but not the underlying cause. So, there's a lot of overlap. For suicidal ideation, if someone you care about uh, outright says they're going to kill themselves, call 911. Or a website resource, you can go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. The number, the hotline, is in English, 1-800-273-8255. And in Spanish, one 628 9454
1: And I just want to interject here. Many of the states have their own crisis, behavioral crisis line. Um, I know I work with one specifically in Georgia, and they will come out to you or where you're at or where the um, person who is suffering and or going through that moment and will come to you and, and help you and to not necessarily diagnose you, but at least walk you through what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very important that this is available to many of the states and, and it's free yes that's the answer I know like cost is part of the reason people don't do therapy mm-hmm. but these different there are some things out there that are um, free and it's available and, and Annie you and I talked about the fact that I want we want to be able to say if you can't find it contact us yeah and I know you're gonna give all the information at the end because I don't remember it. <laughs> yep. I'm just a guest, <laughs> um, but that we can try to help you or at least research with you what yeah. could be
0: available. Absolutely. Um, and some tips for for talking to survivors. Um, there are a lot, but here are some some basic ones. If you know you're going into this conversation, it's good to get educated and know some resources. If you don't know what you're getting into, uh, if you don't know you're getting into this conversation, look some stuff up afterwards. Check in on that person regularly. We are doing that as we record these episodes. Believe the person. Don't question the details. Don't force them to talk about anything they don't want to. It's about giving them control of their story. And um, so this was all about bad coping. In future episodes, we're going to be looking at healthy coping mechanisms and becoming a survivor.
1: Right, and we're going to give examples of some of the things that have been positive through all of this negative conversations that we've had. And I think also just to reiterate, just caring Mm -hmm. and being there can be enough. For me, I've talked about this before. I have a group of friends that don't quite understand what I'm going through, but they sit with me. Mm -hmm. And that's all I ask. I don't ask for them to give me advice. I don't ask for them to give me Ways or information, even just sitting with them and knowing you're valued enough that someone takes their time to come and be with you physically. Mm -hmm. And I'm, by the way, I'm not touchy feely, like, I'm not a big hugger or anything, Mm -hmm. but to have them next to me on a couch while I cry or while I'm trying to figure out this anxiety attack, that's enough sometimes. Yeah. And that's all that, like, that's all that may be needed for that moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, don't underestimate the value of that. So for our self-care... Self-care! ...part of the episode, my D&D fact. Annie, are you okay? Um,
1: Annie, are you okay?
0: (laughs) So, I just dungeon mastered my first game. And you were great at it. Oh, thank you. You
2: weren't there, but thank you. I was, but I got the email. Oh, no, I got the text saying that
0: you did well. Yes, I was very happy how it went. Um, so I was super nervous going in. uh, But... I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot. But the first is, and I should have known this, like I'm playing with the same group I've been playing with forever. I made all these magical items, and um, I made like 15. I've just created them. And the first like four were jokes. Which ones did they buy? The first four. So now they have a ring of invisibility where the ring turns invisible when you put it on. Useful. But they Um, don't? No. Did
1: they realize this?
0: Yeah, and they bought it.
1: Why would they buy it?
0: They think it can do something else. Um, oh, it you can't. tricked them. Well, they should have known at that low price tag. <laughs> <laughs> should charge them more. Um, they bought a howling wolf brooch that when you press it, it howls,
1: you know? And that's it? Yeah, that's all. So that's literally something we could buy now.
0: Yes. Like in real life. Mm-hmm. IRL. I sold them a pet rock. That uh, gives words of encouragement.
1: Okay, I might buy that. Yeah, That's actually lie. really cute. I think I would buy that. It's really cute.
0: Its name is Doggo. I would buy it. Mm-hmm. It's true. And then they bought a helm of encouragement that is overly uh, enthusiastic to go into battle.
1: Okay, I couldn't buy that because I'd fight with that one.
0: <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, I'm debating on whether or not I'm gonna make one of them actually
1: useful. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. I feel like you should make the doggo useful. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He keeps giving all kinds of words of encouragement. So, speaking of which, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to talk about Peaches so much right now because Peaches is getting on my nerves. (laughs) I still love her. Please know this. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I actually played Dominion. Yeah. So, this is one of the first... Role-playing game? RPG? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh. I'm a liar. But there were card expansions.
2: Yeah, sure. Is that Dominion? I don't know. I've never played Dominion.
1: You've never played Dominion? No. I assumed you had played Dominion. Okay, anyway, back to... I played Dominion, Mm -hmm. and the dude I played with is really into it. And I'm trying to be supportive. I'm like, yeah. Sure, I'll be interested because a lot of my friends really like these types of games. But essentially, it's like you buy magic and villages and and right. stop things. And I'll, I'll try to figure it out. And I will say, the dude thought he beat me mm-hmm. and I had to show him. I was like, no, we tied. Thank you very much. Oh, Yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, don't act like you're better than me. And then he was like, oh, I gave you. Like, no, 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 no. You <laughs> thought you had beaten me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I think I could get into these. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can get into D&D because that's just really intense, I feel like.
0: Oh, you could do it.
1: Uh, Mm Oh. But I will say, you know what I do love? What? Because I'm an 80-year-old. What? Puzzles. Oh. Yeah, puzzles are fun. I love puzzles. I think it's so great to not think about anything but whether these fit together. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what I need. I need it to just be perfectly laid out with a beautiful picture. There you go. And that includes Peaches looking at me like, are you feeding me these things? hmm And I don't. <laughs> just so you dog lovers know, I would never give her puzzle pieces.
0: That's good to know, Samantha. Right. Mm-hmm. right.
1: Okay. That was my fact slash coping mechanisms.
0: I'll keep that in mind next game night, Samantha. Puzzles come over to our side. Aha! I don't know, like we,
1: yeah. I was here for your last game night, yeah. and it was super fun.
0: Yeah, we have a great time. We do. We it's a party. I uh, think
1: overall, if we want to talk about what coping is, it's being with people that are like minded mm-hmm. and just having a good time and silly talks. There we go.
0: And this brings us to the end of this episode. We did it. We will be continuing our mini series in the following weeks. But in the meantime, if you would like to reach out to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You. Thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard. Andrew! And thanks to you for listening.
3: Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth. How do I grow a teenager in a pandemic? Well, that's exactly what I want to find out. In my new podcast, Go Ask Allie, I'm asking experts to help me answer that question. For example, are quarantine teenage girls more apt to Instagram nude photos? Are they somehow going to end up on the dark web? Are teenagers getting ripped off by their new virtual education? And how do we deal with their overwhelming anxiety and uncertainty? And are they losing empathy? I'll be talking to experts and friends like my friend Brooke Shields. She'll reveal how her complicated sexual upbringing has influenced how she is as a mother to teenage girls. It's a new world, and how we raise these young humans in it determine our future. So let's share some real experiences with all new episodes releasing every other Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Young Rocker
1: Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland.
2: Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio.
3: Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.